me. Uh, now let's get to the Word. And what I'd like to do, let's just read our text, if you don't mind. I'm reading out of the ESV translation. Um, and so let's read our text, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive into this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. I'd just like to read the text in its entirety and then try to unpack a little bit. 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are known, but we are, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us. The message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, meaning God, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Would you pray with me? Father Heaven, we, we simply come now and ask that you would incline our hearts to your word. Oh, Father, I know there's temptation even now for them to be inclined in so many directions. So, Lord, would you incline them here? Would you just open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word? And then unite all of our thoughts, all of our passions around this central idea of Christ died, buried, risen, and reigning. And satisfy us, God, with that vision, so much so that we leave here changed. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever had a time where a passage or a verse of Scripture just kind of jumped out at you and resonated or was applied in your life in such a way that every time you read that text or that verse, you remember where you were when that first happened? 
Well, I do. Uh, so the last verse we read there, 2 Corinthians 6, 3. I can remember where that verse first kind of jumped out and arrested my heart. I was in Zambia serving as a two-year IMB missionary. And I was driving in a truck with a colleague of mine who lived in a certain area of Zambia, kind of a rural area of Zambia. And we, he was driving, I was in the passenger seat, and we had our friend named Borniface, who served also as our interpreter, he was in the back. And so my friend Josh said, hey, there's a town, there's a village I heard about that I want to go and see if it might be ripe for the gospel. So you want to come along with me on an exploratory trip? I said, sure. So we got in the truck, and as we're going, it's a couple-hour drive, and I thought, this is a great time to work on some memory verses. So I had my little note cards out. I was working on my memory verse. Uh, Josh looks over to me and says, hey, what verse are you working on there? And I say, 2 Corinthians 6.3. And I say, let me see if I've learned it. I'll quote it to you. And I said, this is New King James. I said, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that the ministry may not be blamed. He's like, oh, yeah, that's a great verse. You know, no, no. We go on, we arrive to the village, and we get out, and as I said, this village was um, on a lake. This village, the name of the village was Ensambo. And uh, as soon as we get there, we just kind of feel like this oppression. You know what I mean? And as we get there, we begin to talk to some people, and one, one of the um, fishermen says, Hey, I'll, I'll take you on a, a tour of the lake if you want, in my boat. Which I looked at, I said, That's a boat? Like a stick with a hole in it. We well, said, sure, yeah, we'd like to take a tour. You know, maybe we can see some hippos or something. And so he said, yeah, it's just 5,000 kwacha. That's all, that's all I asked for this tour, which is a dollar. 5,000 kwacha. We said, sure, no problem. So we hop in the boat, and we take the tour, and it lasted for a few minutes. And honestly, we didn't see any hippos. I, maybe one, like, in the distance. He's like, yeah, there's a hippo. I'm like, I think that's a log. Like, anyways, like, you want to get your money's worth? And so we got through with the little tour, and as we're getting out of the boat, I take out my 5,000 kwacha to give to the man, because he says, hey, I need payment. And as I'm paying him, my buddy Josh says, wait, David, I've already paid him. But it was too late. I'd already given him the 5,000 kwacha. The dollar. So I began to argue with this man about the dollar, the 5,000 kwacha, I, he had just ripped me out of. And I'm working with my friend Borniface, the interpreter. I didn't speak a lot of the language at that point. And I'm saying, Borniface, tell him, give me that money back. That's my money. And so they begin talking and all this stuff. And they kind of get a little heated as they're talking. At one point, Borniface takes off his hat and says, I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? Like I found out later, they were about to throw down. That's a great evangelism strategy, isn't it? Just go in and like pick a fight with a bunch of people. It was at this point when Borniface was going on his bimba tirade, my friend Josh looked over and said, Hey, David, uh, what was that verse you were memorizing earlier? We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that the ministry may not be blamed. And at that point, I said, Borneville, let's, let's, let's just go. And we left. And at that point, God asked me this question that I ask you, how much kwacha do you think the gospel is worth? Or, if you want to put it a different way, 
what rights am I not willing to lay down in service of the gospel's extension? Or since I'm preaching, I'm supposed to preach to you as well, not just myself. Although I want you to know, I'm the primary target in this sermon. What rights are you unwilling to lay down in service of the extension of the gospel? How much quacha is the gospel worth to you? Well, you know, not everything is worth laying rights down for. Isn't that true? Suppose someone came to you and said, hey, I, I want you to know we've, we've found the cure for cancer. And you're the only one qualified to go and get it. It's in the jungles of Congo. You're going you're gonna to have to fight like some gorillas and like go through like this river with all these snakes. And like, You would probably say, it's worth it. I'll go to get the cure for cancer. But if someone said, hey, dude, I found this really cool candy cane like down in the Congo... I said, candy cane stand? Like, dude, you need to go? And like, yeah, there's gorillas and jungle, but there's some cool candy canes. Now, everything's worth laying down your rights for, right? Or parents. Man, some, of parents, some parents in this room, you are scrimping, you are saving, you are sacrificially laying up money so your kids can go to college. That's worth laying down rights for, right? Your right to your Cash. Now, hopefully you're not with the same vigor and diligence sacrificing and saving money so your kids can go to Disney World. Which many of you right now are saying, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Some things aren't worth laying down your rights for. Some things aren't worth suffering for. But the gospel is. We come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this is exactly what Paul is trying to get us to latch on to. In fact, he has been laboring from chapter 2, and he will go right, right up to chapter 7, and he will labor to show the Corinthians that his commission is worth suffering for. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, Pastors Keith, Pastors Colby, they have been preaching from 2 Corinthians, showing us how we, just like Paul, have a commission. We're being commissioned by Corinthians. And what Paul does from 2 to 7 is labor to prove that his commission, which brings suffering, and in the Corinthians' minds, weakness upon him, it is all worth it. Because of the gospel he's trying to extend. So, all right, there's no outline in your notes, I know that. If you want a summary sentence for the sermon so you can take a nap, here it is. The glorious gospel of gravity demands its representatives relinquish their rights. Those of you in my Sunday school class, you're not su surprised at the alliteration, I know. The glorious gospel of gravity demands that its representatives relinquish their rights. All of their rights. In hopes that this gospel would be extended to every man, every woman, every child, both here and to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 11. We're going to look at verse 11 through 13 again. Paul says, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We're going to come back to that. 
I want you to see what the main point Paul's getting at in this text, this little paragraph. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. Verse 12, we're not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. Here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, hey, Corinthians, there's some false teachers who have come into your midst, and they are coming in, and they are totally opposite to what I have done when I have been among you. They're coming in. I came in. I didn't receive payment for my teaching. They're coming in and they're receiving payment and they're telling you that the, um, uh, there's a direct corollary between the honorarium you give to a speaker and his importance. The more a speaker or a teacher is paid, the more important he is. And they're actually coming in and deriding me, Paul says, because I preach the gospel free of charge. These false teachers, they're coming in with these letters of, of recommendation. This, this guy here, this church over here says, yeah, this guy's a great preacher. Paul's coming in and saying, look, you're my letter of recommendation. I don't need external outside things to vouch for the ministry. These opponents, they're coming in and they're having this showy rhetoric. And Paul's coming in and though he knows the art of rhetoric, he chooses not to be flashy, to draw attention to himself. Yet he labors to show explicitly what the gospel is and its implications. And the false teachers are coming in and saying, that guy Paul, the one who suffers, the one who's poor, the one who's weak, the one who goes through these sufferings, that's evidence that God does not approve of his ministry. That mentality still exists today, doesn't it? You can call it the prosperity gospel, you can call it health and wealth, whatever. That mentality still exists, not just in our culture at large, but deep within every single heart in this room. And Paul's saying, look, I'm giving you something here to make a defense, to say, yeah, Paul, Paul really is doing it right. Weakness, suffering, laying down rights really is the way to conduct this gospel ministry. And that's why Paul says in verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. I say, what was Paul talking about? Some people say, well, well, maybe Paul, when he was in Corinth, sometimes he had these ecstatic utterances of tongues like Jesse and David did this morning. And maybe like that's what he's talking about. And so... That's not what he's talking about. There's a clue if you turn very quickly to Mark chapter 3. The, the same word is used in Mark chapter 3 when, when Jesus begins his ministry and he's going around, he's teaching, he's doing miracles, and he's going around, he commissions his disciples, and then in verse 20 of Mark chapter 3 it says, Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat Verse 21, here's the same word from Corinthians. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now notice what caused Jesus' family to say he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Look at verse 20 again. He was doing ministry so that he could not even eat. Honestly, they weren't concerned about his messianic claims. Like, in their understanding and what they thought Messiah to be, they were like, yeah, that's cool. In fact, remember Jesus' mom in John 2? Hey, bring the wine, Jesus. Messiah? With Messiah comes wine, right? So they had no qualms about his messianic role. They had qualms about, dude, you're, 
You're killing yourself. You don't have time for a snack. That's crazy. And Paul comes into Corinth and he says, no, I don't, I'm not going to receive payment. And Paul comes into Corinth and he says, no, 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 I, I will, as he's going to say in chapter 12, I, I'm going to glory in this thorn in my side because when I am weak, he is strong. And they say, you're crazy. Does anyone think you're crazy? Church, if our ministry does not lead anyone that we know personally to think we are crazy, then we might be out of step with Paul and with Jesus. Anyone think you're crazy about how you pray for other people? We got a brother in this room who said, you know what, I'm going to take Fridays. From now on, from Fridays, instead of eating lunch, I'm going to fast and pray because I know there are Muslims around this world who are fasting on Fridays, and I'm going to fast, and I'm going to pray that God would intervene all across this world and bring them to the cross. So can't we, like, do that in the prayer as we bless our Big Mac? Bless the food and save the Muslims. Let's eat. That's crazy. Like, you're going to not eat? Others in this congregation, I'm sure, you make a certain dollar amount, but because of your desire to see the gospel spread, you're not living at what you make. In fact, probably some in this room are living at significant levels below that so that you can see the gospel extended here in our Jerusalem and all across the world. And your peers and your neighbors, you look and say, where's your boat? Where's this or where's that? And it doesn't necessarily have to be that. Where's your new clothes? You're like, well, I shop at Goodwill because, first of all, the clothes are cool, right? And secondly, because the gospel. You say, well, that's crazy. Some of you open your homes to folks that maybe many in this room would say, that's not a good way to open your home. Some of you are moving or some of you are planning to move into situations and areas where folks are saying, you're crazy. You know, we're moving to Zambia. Zambia is probably the most politically stable country in Africa. No Ebola. And I almost wish there was a civil war and like everyone had Ebola. Because so many times I'm asked the question, oh, so you're going to Zambia? And those are the first two questions like, any civil war? Check, okay. Any Ebola? No. Okay, check. You're, okay, you're good. God bless you. But what if it was, man... There's Ebola all over the place, and it's in the midst of a heated civil war. Is the gospel worth it? Is it a glorious gospel of gravity that demands that its representatives relinquish all of our rights? Or is it something else? I think it's the former and not the latter, right? This gospel is worth us being crazy. And I got three reasons to show that. All that was introduction, okay? 
Some of you are like, nervous laughter at the points you're going to go fast. Don't worry, all right? <laughs> Reason one. Why is the gospel worthy of us being thought crazy over? Number one, because of the gospel's focus. Because of the gospel's focus. And the gospel's focus is Jesus the King. And specifically in this text, there are two aspects about Jesus the King that we see definitely motivates Paul. First of all, Paul is thinking about Jesus as judge, and then he starts to think about Jesus as Savior, and both of them motivate him to be crazy, to relinquish his rights to see this gospel expand. Look at verse 11 again. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. And I know it's cheesy, and I'm going to say it. Whenever you see a therefore, find out what it's therefore. He's just been talking about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. The one who, behold, he comes, riding on a cloud, shining like the sun in blazing glory. The one who, Revelation 19 says, when he comes, it will not be like the first time when he came wrapped in our human frailty. He came meekly, he came mildly, born in a little, little farm, a little stable, a little manger. He's not coming that way again. He's coming, Revelation 19 says, riding on the white horse with a sharp sword going out of his mouth with which he will judge the nations and he will rule over them with a rod of iron and he will shatter them like a potter's vessel and he has on his robe and on his thigh this new name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the second coming. And Paul's thinking about that and he says, when he comes, he's judging He's going to judge me based upon what I've done. I, don't, I haven't worked all that out. I don't know exactly how that's going to work out. We're not going to be judged in terms of like, hey, you did this and that. Maybe you can merit salvation. In fact, the very next text eliminates that thought. But we are going to be judged in some way based upon what we have done with what he's entrusted to us. But he's primarily thinking about the judgment of those who do not know yet. And we don't even have to bring out all the missionary statistics so you probably expect, hey, missionary, you should do that. All we have to do is look around in our own neighborhood and realize if men and women and children are not reconciled to God, they will face an eternity in punishment away from him. And so knowing that, Paul says, I'm motivated to persuade. We'll come back to persuasion in a moment. So Jesus is the judge. Secondly, Jesus is the Savior. Look at verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. By that, Paul does not mean our love for Jesus. He means Jesus' love for us and this world. Jesus is not just the judge. He is the Savior. He's not just there to execute the punishment. He's there to fix the problem. And Paul says in verse 15, he died for all. So Jesus is Savior. He's the only Savior. In this verse, some take this verse to say, hey, Paul is speaking about universalism. Everyone's going to be saved. He's not pointing so much to universalism as he is pointing to an underscoring of the fact that Acts 4.12 is still true. There is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's worth being crazy about. That's worth relinquishing our rights 
to see that this saving Jesus could be embraced by the people we're surrounded by. Second reason why the gospel is worthy of us being crazy or relinquishing our rights. Not only the gospel's focus, but the gospel's effect. And here primarily I'm thinking about its effect on outsiders. That's what Paul gets at when he turns to verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And here Paul kind of unpacks this gospel, which I guess we probably need to step back for a moment and explain what we mean by that, although we do that a lot. But I, I feel like sometimes we're in danger of, you know, kind of the Sicilian and the Princess Bride, you know. And Diego Mentoyo says, you keep using that word. I do not think you, it means what you think it means, you know. If you haven't seen the movie, don't worry about it. But I think we use that word all the time, like gospel this, gospel that, gospel life, gospel living. God, you know, what does it mean? Well, our pastors say this all the time, right? The gospel primarily is not good advice. It's something we should do. The gospel is good news, something that's already been done for us. And really, to answer that question, what is the gospel, there's a couple ways to do it. And Paul gives us a broad answer and then a narrow answer. He goes big, macro, and then he narrows in the lens and goes micro. What is the gospel? Let me just give you the answer, and we'll put Bible under it. First of all, in this broad sense, the gospel is the good news, the great announcement of what God has done, is doing, and will do through his son Jesus to fix this world. That's what the gospel is. It's the good news, the great announcement of what God has done, past tense, is doing, present tense, and will do, future tense, to fix this world. That's why Paul says in verse 17, he says, If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Then he, he says, wait a second, that's the narrow. Let me go broad. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The cosmos, this universe. It's what he says in Colossians when he says in 1.19 that all the fullness of deity dwelt in Jesus bodily so that he can reconcile all things to himself. Things in heaven, things on earth, having made peace by the blood of his cross. What Jesus did and has done and is doing is not just for us as individuals, it's for this entire universe to be brought into rightness with the original tent, intent of the creator. And Jesus is the one who's actualizing all that. He's fixing this universe, right? But Paul then does narrow down and he says, it's not just about what God's doing, has done, and will do through his son Jesus to fix the universe. It's also about what God has done, is doing, and will do through his son to fix me. And every single individual in this room. That's why it's like he can't get, he can't get away from the gospel. <laughs> he comes back in 21 and kind of like nutshells it all, right? For our sake, God made Jesus the one who never knew sin, never committed sin. He made him not to be a sinner, but to be sin. So that in him, we then might become the essence of rightness in God's eyes. 
That's a great exchange, isn't it? You ever been on the end of a good trade? Don't say you never have because this is it, right? Surely you've been on the end of a bad trade, right? You know how that feels? Great theologian, Sheil Silverstein. He's a children's poet. He wrote a poem called Smart, which talks about a bad trade. Here's how it goes. My dad gave me a $1 bill because I'm his smartest son. And I swapped it for two shiny quarters because two is more than one. And then I took the quarters and traded them to Lou for three dimes. I guess he don't know that three is more than two. Just then along came old blind Bates. And just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes. And four is more than three. And I took the nickels to Hiram Coombs down at the feed seed store. And that old man gave me five pennies for them. And five is more than four. And then I went and showed my dad. And he got red in the cheeks. Closed his eyes and shook his head. Too proud of me to speak. <laughs> That's a rotten trade, isn't it? 521 of 2 Corinthians is the direct opposite of that. It's such a glorious exchange. It takes the entire New Testament to unpack it, and it will take all eternity for us to extol it in our praises. This is the gospel's effect on outsiders, right? It unites us with Christ, and having been united with Christ, we're then reconciled to God, God who at one time was our enemy. Now we come in Christ, united with Christ, reconciled to God, we're friends, we're not enemies, and now ushered into a new creation. Which is what verse 17 is all about. If anyone is in Christ, reconciled to God, new creation. And we begin to experience these old things passing away and everything now becoming new. Our perspective's new. That's why Paul says in verse 16, from now on then, we regard no one according to the flesh. Since we have been united with Christ, reconciled to God, ushered into a new creation, now I look at people and I see them with gospel lenses. And I don't think, how can I use this person in order to get ahead in life? I think, how can the gospel that I have here get into them? change our perspective and it changes our purpose. We're now, verse 15, Paul says, living for Jesus, the one who died for our sake and rose again. We're now, verse 11, persuading men and women to be reconciled to God. In verse 20, we're imploring men. In verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 1, we are now, it says, working together with him. We're commissioning with him. It changes everything. So the gospel's worth relinquishing rights because of the gospel's focus, Jesus our King, because of the gospel's effect on outsiders, and because of the gospel's effect on insiders. And what do you mean by that? I mean, when we come to know Jesus, we're united with him, reconciled to God, ushered into a new creation, all things are new, and they continue to become new and new and new. The gospel doesn't stop when we come initially. It keeps working. And it is the very thing that will empower us to do what Paul has been asking us to do the whole time. Namely, relinquish our rights to see the gospel advance. Does that make sense? 
You think, okay, man, you're talking about like sacrifice, like not eating and like opening my home and like going like over. What are you? I can't do that. You're right. We haven't been asked to do it. See, don't forget 2 Corinthians 5. This is going to be like a duh moment, but 2 Corinthians 5 comes after 2 Corinthians 3. I know 4 is in between, but uh, which we heard preached not too long ago. And remember in 2 Corinthians 3, remember what Paul says? This is amazing when, when God kind of brought my heart to this this week. In 2 Corinthians 3, remember he says in verse 18, but we all with unveiled faces are beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and that beholding is then transforming us progressively more and more and more into the image of Jesus. Right? I started reading this this week and I thought, all right, I, 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 I get kind of the, the rhythm here. We're reconciled to God, and, and then God entrusts us a ministry. So, so this ministry is from God, okay? And then it comes through Jesus, right? And now by, what's the instrumentality by which this ministry will be executed? What you would expect Paul to say, Holy Spirit. Didn't you learn that, like in you know, your theology classes, your Sunday school classes, your, your Bible 101s, your catechisms, whatever you went through, that all things, this, this ministry is from God, through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. But what does Paul say? From God, through Jesus, who's the instrument? Paul says, I am. Whoa. Paul's taking over Holy Spirit. Whoa, whoa, watch out, lightning bolt. No lightning bolt. He's making a point. He's saying, as we are progressively changed more and more to the image of Jesus by the Spirit's power, it is that same Spirit that enables us to commission with God the Father through Jesus the Son by us, Spirit anointed and empowered, doing the things God has sovereignly placed us here to do. Namely, imploring men and women and children to be reconciled to God. Got to preach, Zach. Isn't that good? This, this weighty gospel, this glorious gospel, this glorious gospel of gravity does demand us relinquish as its representatives all our rights, but that relinquishing is not something to be done on our own power. It is the spirit-wrought ability that those who have tasted and seen are able to freely and joyfully do. It's where the power comes to lay down our rights. So how much gospel, or excuse me, how much quacha do you think the gospel is worth? What rights are you not willing to lay down in order to see the gospel expand? We have a right to get good customer service, do we not? Is my right for my fries being delivered to me in a timely manner, is that right going to be an obstacle for me hopefully establishing any kind of gospel beachhead at all in this person named Bon Quiqui's life? 
What kind of rights are we not willing to relinquish? I'm talking to parents. I know parents in this room, some of you have children who are grown and out of the house, and man, they don't know the Lord, they're running from the Lord, and you deserve to be respected and honored by them, but you're not getting that. Will you hold on to that right of being respected and honored, and will you hold on to that right so hard that it prevents you from being able to lovingly and humbly be able to share and speak the gospel into those recalcitrant hearts of your grown children? We can go on and on, but maybe the Holy Spirit would do a better job in the application. 2010, 10 years after my encounter at the lake in the village of Ensambo, I went back to Zambia on a short-term mission trip. Actually, my brother who's here this morning was with me. and We went to work with my friend Josh again. and We went to work in a different area. And as we're working, we're kind of doing hut-to-hut evangelism. It's a lot better technique than brawl evangelism. We're doing hut-to-hut evangelism, and each of us had an interpreter with us, and my interpreter's name was Alex. And man, as we're going like from hut-to-hut, I'm like... This brother, got, he, he's got it. Like, he knows the gospel, like, well. At one point, I was like, hey, just, like, you talk. Like, I don't, like, why am I talking? You do the talking. He knew the gospel well. And as we're chit-chatting, like, hey, Alex, are you from Lewingo, where, where Josh lives? He looked at me, and he said, um, no, I'm from, from a village a couple hours away called Insombo. That's the village where we almost threw down. In 2003. I said, really? He said, yeah, by Josh, you know, Mr. Josh came years ago and started a church. I was one of his first members, and he's been working with me and discipling me. And I thought then, how much quacha is the gospel worth? I want to hold on to my dollar? Josh, because he was willing to relinquish his right of his dollar, he was able to see the gospel expand in this village and in this man's life and many others. Now, for some of us, it may even be more serious than a quatre or a dollar, and I'll close with this. Some of us might be called upon at some point to relinquish the right Seeing our grandchildren grow up here amongst us. I know we got grandparents in this room who holding to that, and God may call others in this room for that. Let me leave you with the encouragement of Jim Elliott, who, as you can recall, in the mid-1950s, along with Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Roger Darren, and Pete Fleming, he was one of the five martyred in the Ecuadorian jungles by the cannibalistic Waldani people. His parents knew he was going, and they did not want to relinquish. Before he left, he wrote them a letter. Here's what he said. I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned us of when he told 
the disciples that they must become so infatuated with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. And he never excluded the family tie. In fact, those loves which we regard as closest, he told us, must become as hate in comparison with our desires to uphold his cause. Grieve not then if your sons seem to desert you, but rejoice rather seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described children? He said that they were as a heritage from the Lord and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And then he asked this question. What is a quiver full of but of arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with a strong arm of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them straight at the enemy's host. Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. Lift up your hearts in prayer for them victorious. And all that thou spendest, Jesus will repay. How much kwacha is the gospel worth? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do not make light of any suffering, any sacrifices, any relinquishing of rights that anyone in this room is called upon to do. But Father, we pray that you would come and by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to see how all of this suffering, all of this weakness, all of these relinquishing of rights are but light and momentary as we think about the glory to be revealed in us and to us at the return of the King. So, Father, would you come and apply this message to our hearts? And, Lord, though the, the tenor of this message has been aimed at your church, Father, we pray you would come, and for hearts in this room now, who have never been reconciled to you, would you plead through my pleading for every man and woman and child in this room to be reconciled to God. And may the glorious gospel of gravity, the fact that he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might be made right and have joy with God, may that supersede and dominate and consume us as we respond now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Pastor Colby is going to be at the front. I'm going to ask you if you'll stand, and we're going to sing a song response. If you need prayer, if you need to come down and pray, pray with one of our pastors. Just stand and worship. You do as the Lord leads you.